You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So we're, we've started in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Luke, but, but really to understand anything that's going on in Luke, chap, really the whole gospel of Luke, we have to read the first verse or two uh, because it's there that Luke gives us the key to interpreting his entire gospel. And so he says this in verse 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Verse 1, he says, he says that he's writing to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So right now, we see the purpose of Luke's writing. He's writing because certain things have been accomplished. There's a theme of fulfillment and accomplishment and finality in Luke's gospel. And that's going to open up for us how we read even the 20 verses we're tasked with this morning. That we're reading with expectation that things will be accomplished in this narrative because Luke is giving us foreshadowing that they will be. And so that is how we have to enter in when we start reading. And so let's look at verse 5. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So right here in the first three verses of this text, uh, of Luke's narrative, in the first three verses of unpacking narrative, we already see so many themes from the Old Testament brought up. First, in the language that Luke is using. he's, He's writing as one who wrote Old Testament narrative history. I mean, if you read 1 and 2 Samuel or 1 and 2 Kings, it would not be rare to hear a tale begin with words like, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Like Luke is already telling us the Old Testament narrative is about to be continued. The story of God's people is on the move here in this account. Just notice the way that I'm writing. And then we see details that are important. We're told of Zechariah and Elizabeth, both both of priestly lineage. And this is important because that means that Zechariah's job as a priest is to mediate God's covenant with God's people. And so God has made covenant since the days of Adam that he would be to his people a God and they would be his people and that they would dwell in unity. And so he's, he's saying that the person that's starting my narrative is one who mediates that covenant. And so we're thinking about God's relationship with his people as we think about Zechariah. And then it says that both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were righteous and blameless before God. And this is important because there are not many people described in the Old Testament scriptures as blameless. But all of them who were described as blameless were incredibly important pieces in God's redemptive history and what he was doing. Noah was described as blameless. 
David was described as blameless. The prophet Daniel was described as blameless. But not many more people were described as blameless. And so Zechariah is now being identified along with Elizabeth as key players in what God is going to do to fulfill his covenant promises with his people. And then we're given one more detail about Elizabeth that is incredibly important, that she is barren and that they're advanced in years. So so this is not only culturally significant in that for a first century woman, a lot of her social status would be based upon whether or not she could provide for her family a male heir to carry on the family lineage, to carry on the family inheritance, to carry on the family business. For their case, probably to serve in the priesthood. And and yet Elizabeth and Zechariah, in spite of their righteousness, were not given a child until they, they were advanced in years. But this motif of barrenness is important for any Jewish reader because they would immediately be thinking of Abraham and Sarah or Hannah, who gives birth to Samuel, or Rebecca, or Manoah, who gives birth to Samson. And so we're thinking about these important people in the history of God's, of God's story who were born out of barrenness, that God opened the womb of a barren woman so that he could bring forth an important figure in his history. And so this, so after three verses, we should be expecting God to do something amazing in this story. Luke is making it clear to his readers, who in the first century would certainly have been familiar with the Old Testament, probably far more than we are, even if that is to our shame. And so he continues in verse 8 through 10. He says, now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So, so what, what is happening here with Zechariah is that, that there were thousands of priests probably in his division. And that to go in to burn incense in the temple as a priestly duty, lots were cast so that a priest could be chosen. And And the odds of this happening were low. And and so for a priest to be chosen, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. For him to be able to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense such that it would go up as a petition to God and a fragrant offering to remind God of the prayers of the people of Israel. And so Zechariah has this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and the multitude of the people are outside the temple petitioning that the promises of God would come to pass. Right? That they would hear the, the prayers of the people, that he would smell the fragrance of the incense and that God would move in response to the cries of his people. And so expectation is building even more. Not only do we have all of these Old Testament themes to consider, but we have this, this consideration that this is a particular moment in the life of Zechariah. And it goes on in verse 11. 11 through 15 says this, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So the plot is thickening even more. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth 
will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So right now we're being told that Zechariah's wife is going to conceive out of her old age and out of her barrenness, and this angel is telling Zechariah that he's going to have a son, and this son's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which in the Old Covenant days, this is not something that was true of all of God's people to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it was true of those people that God used in particular ways to bring about redemption for Israel. And we learned that that this son is going to take a vow as a Nazarite. He's not going to let a razor touch his head. He's not going to drink wine or strong drink. And and the only other Nazarite that we really know much about in scriptures is Samuel. I mean, is Samson. And Samson was a judge over Israel. And he was a judge over Israel, born out of a barren woman. And when God foretold of Samson's birth, he said that Samson will be one who begins to save Israel from the Philistines. So now we're, we're linking this child to Samson, this great judge over Israel who began to do the work of seeing that Israel is saved. And so now we're expecting that, that this son might begin to do the work of finally saving Israel. Like expectation builds even more. So God is beginning to do a thing in the world that are sure markers of the history of his relationship with his people. That are sure markers of his covenant promises being remembered. That are sure markers that the things written of old to the people of Israel about the ways in which God relates to them are not just myths. They're not just stories that they were told by their ancestors, but they're real and they're beginning to take place. And Zechariah is alone in the presence of this angel beginning to realize that all of God's promises are beginning to come to pass. And so the knowledgeable reader of this text, if someone is aware of the Old Testament, like there are allusions already of Noah. Noah who, who might lead us to believe that we should be expecting a new creation as Noah was one who, when the floodwaters subsided, stepped onto dry land of a new creation. We're, we're reminded in this story of Abraham and so maybe we're expecting God's covenant to Abraham that he would make Israel a great nation. Maybe that's coming to pass. We're, we're remembering Hannah and her being saved out of her barrenness and and maybe her son Samuel who prepared the way for King David. So maybe we're expecting a king for Israel to come. We're remembering Daniel, the prophet who was expecting this mighty day of the Lord when judgment and salvation and righteousness for Israel would finally come to pass and we're reminded of Samson, expecting the salvation of Israel to begin. And then the angel says something in verses 16 and 17 that make things even more interesting, if that's possible. He says this, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, 
to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so what the angel here is doing is he's essentially quoting Malachi chapter 4. And in our Old Testament, Malachi is the last book of the Bible, and it's because it was the last thing written to the people of Israel. This is the last prophetic word that the people of Israel were given. And so let's turn to Malachi chapter 4 and see what is so significant about the angel claiming this. It says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And and so here the prophet Malachi is telling the people of Israel through the, the word of the Lord that there is a day coming when Israel will full hopes of salvation will be realized when they will no longer be rejected and attacked by wickedness and sin and death and destruction, but where God will come and and grant for them victory and hope and salvation. And he says, but before that happens, the, the prophet of Elijah, he's going to come and he's going to prepare that. And if that doesn't happen, then, then maybe the Lord won't keep his promise. And what the angel is saying is that this is exactly what is happening. That this son who is being born under this barren woman will be in the spirit of the prophet Elijah. And now if you're not familiar with the prophet Elijah, he's probably the greatest prophet in Israel's history. And and he has an interesting end to his story. You can read about him in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. But in 2 Kings, when, when is really the last we see of the prophet Elijah... He goes to the Jordan River with his successor, Elisha, and he does some works to remind Elisha of the works of Moses. He parts the Jordan River, and they walk through it as dry land. But then the heavens rip open, and Elijah is taken up into the heavens in a whirlwind. And so there's no account of him really dying, but he's just consumed up into heaven. And so the prophet Malachi is saying, there will be a prophet who will come to to be a a consummate prophet, to be the one who finally and fully prepares the way for the Lord. And the angel is telling Zechariah that his son is going to be this prophet, this prophet who was consumed up into heaven from the Jordan River will actually have a ministry as John the Baptist, baptizing people in the Jordan River where the heavens will eventually rip open and God will speak down that the son whom he's baptizing is his son. And so we see like all of these things from the Bible coming to pass here. And and yet what we see is some pushback from Zechariah. 
He says, how, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And, and this is significant because this is exactly what Abraham said to God when God told Abraham that his wife would bear for him a son. He said, I, I, I don't really know how this could be. I don't really trust this in full. And then something really interesting happens. One, the angel reveals himself. He says, he says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now, now Gabriel is an angel that only shows up three times in the Bible and only once in the Old Testament. And he's an angel that came to the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel had had this vision, and the angel Gabriel comes to reveal what this vision is. And, and he explains that the vision is about a coming prince for the people of Israel. And, and when this prince comes, the need for sacrifice and offering will be ended. And, and so this, this angel is l linked to promising the Messiah, to promising the eventual coming of Jesus, the prince of peace who makes sacrifice unnecessary with his perfect sacrifice. And so this is a, Gabriel revealing himself. He's saying, like, like, what I'm telling you is that your son's going to be a part of this story. Your son's going to be a part of the salvation for Israel. But then he continues, and he says, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so at this point in, in Luke chapter 1, what we've seen is all of the summation of almost all of the prophetic writings that the people of Israel had been looking toward coming together. In 25 verses, the entire Old Testament is beginning to come to, together and all of the promises of God are beginning to be revealed as if they're coming to pass. But Zechariah cannot tell a soul about it. And, and this discipline of being silenced is, is interesting. He has to be silent. He's given a period of, of silence and waiting and discipline, of testing, until this promise comes to pass. And it, it's interesting for a lot of reasons, but I, I think this, the angel making Zechariah silent is extremely significant. This isn't just a, a, a discipline he thought of off the top of his head. It, it is purposeful. See, for the people of Israel, they had been waiting 400 years since Malachi, the last prophet, spoke to them. And 400 is a significant number because 40 is a significant number in the scriptures. It's a number of waiting and of testing, and 400 is 40 times 10. So it's 400 years since the last prophetic voice. It had been 40 years for the people of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness with Moses in this time of waiting and testing until they could finally enter God's promised land of rest. For 40 days, Noah and his family waited on the ark while the earth was covered in waters as it was before the creation of the earth. And he had to wait for 40 days for a new creation to be established. And how long is it that Zechariah will have to wait if not for a 40-week pregnancy? Forty more weeks for the people of Israel 
to wait for the promises of God to come a pass. A, a testing time. If, if pregnancy is not a difficult time of testing, I don't know what is. It's a time of testing not only for Zechariah and Elizabeth, for, but for all the people of Israel. And when the promise of God comes to pass, it will not be Zechariah who is the first voice to cry out to the people of Israel, but it will be the prophet John the Baptist crying out after he leaves his mother's womb and enters the world, crying out a voice of hope that God's promises are finally coming to pass. And so then we have this moment where Zechariah has to, to come out of the temple while the people have been praying that God's promises would come to pass. And he knows that they're going to come to pass. And he comes out and he can't say a word about it. And so Zechariah's current state is also Israel's current state where, where they all have to wait a little bit longer to be tested. Wait just a little bit longer for God's promises to come to pass. And then it says in verses 24 and 25, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. This is beautiful and significant for so many reasons. One, Elizabeth recognizes that, that what God has done for her is, is beautiful and she's worshiping in light of it. But, but her understanding of how beautiful it is because of the silence of her husband is small at this point. The reproach that is for her as an old woman who has not yet born children has been removed from her. This social reproach that no longer is she despised or rejected by the people, but now she has fulfilled kind of her societal duty, her familial duty. Like this, the Lord has liberated her in this way. But what she doesn't yet realize is, is that her reproach being removed will lead to a prophet in John the Baptist who will be the one who points to the Lord Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the reproach of the world. Like her reproach has been lifted, but her son is going to proclaim that there is one coming who will lift the reproach of all who would come to him. All who would come to this Jesus that her son will prepare the way for will be even more glorified than Elizabeth in her pregnancy. Their full reproach will be removed. Not only the reproach of people, but the reproach of God himself. And that all of God's promises will come to pass in their life. And this is where the text leads us, leaves us. For this morning. And so, so the question is, is what do we do with it? Well, I hope in these 20 verses that we've looked at, I, I hope that one thing that it does is it just makes us love God's revealed word even more. That we recognize that it's so beautiful, that it is so deep and rich, and that, that all of it is so orchestrated by the divine that we can see its beauty in every verse. That in 20 verses, Luke... Luke's account of what happened has recalled an entire, an entire collection of writings for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. 
So would we be a people that just marvel at God's word, that we would look at it and just, we would just be satisfied with it? That we could see that, that what God has revealed to us is utterly beautiful, that it's completely satisfying, that it's fully hopeful. One thing that we can also realize is, is that just like the people of Israel waited for 400 years for God to speak once again, we can realize that God has spoken once again, that he's not a silent God, but that he's spoken. He's spoken through his prophets. He's spoken through John the Baptist, kind of the final Old Testament prophet. And that he's fully spoken through his son. That all of God's revelation has come through his son. If we read the first chapter of John's gospel, we would see that to be true, that the that God's word is revealed in his son, that his, his son is in fact his word. Maybe we can realize that, that, that for those of us who have put our hope in Jesus, that like Elizabeth, our reproach has been removed. Like our standing, not only among people, but before God has been made sure and steady and glorious. That, that God has done a work on our behalf that we can marvel at and just praise Him. That Lord, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for a season where we can anticipate His coming. That in His life, death, and resurrection, that you've lifted my burdens and my shame and my reproach and my sin. That you've given me hope beyond death. And finally, what we ought to realize in this Advent season is, is much like Zechariah in, in these weeks of silence. Uh, this, these weeks where he knows what is going to happen. He, he's fully aware as one deeply understanding of the Old Testament writings that his son is that promised prophet who's going to prepare the day of the Lord. Like he knows that in his life he's going to get to see the Messiah come. And, and so he's overwhelmed by this, but there's a time of waiting to see that fully come to pass. And, and while it has fully come to pass and that Jesus has now not only entered the world, but he's lived righteously, he's died sacrificially, he's risen victoriously, he's ascended gloriously to the right hand of the Father, but that we are still in a time of waiting for the fullness of fulfillment. That right now we live in a world where we have experienced in part God's salvation in part God's grace, in part freedom from sin, in part our reproach has been lifted, but there is coming a day that for now we have to wait where those things will be known in full, where we will have to wait no longer for God to establish a fully new creation, where we will have to wait no longer for God to establish a fully righteous people. We will have to wait no longer for God to establish full freedom from sin and death and despair, where we won't have to wait anymore for these things. But unlike Zechariah, in this time of waiting, we are not condemned to silence. For we have good news for the people of the world that God's promises have come to pass in his son and that in his son there's salvation and there's joy and there's life and there's riches beyond measure and there's, there's 
worship to be had and there's fullness to be experienced. And so in this Advent season, as we prepare to celebrate in full, would we understand that it is a grace that we have not been silenced like Zechariah. That it is a grace that God has given his people the full revelation of what will come to pass in his son making all things new, in his son saving from sin, and that we get to tell people about it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we love your word and we're thankful that in it you have revealed yourself fully in your son, that in this season where we anticipate celebrating his birth, but we also long for his second coming, where we're experiencing your gospel in fullness at times, but in part at other times, that we know there's a day coming when, when there will be no more death, there will be no more sin, there will be no more destruction, there will be no more tears. And so would you make us a fruitful church, Lord? If, if we're barren like Elizabeth, would you, would you move that we would be fruitful to proclaim your grace? That we would, like John the Baptist, prepare the way of your son coming? That we would know that it's not about us, as John the Baptist knew it wasn't about him. That we would proclaim the riches and excellency of Jesus in full that we would not only love you more and more and more, but that more and more people would love you. That more and more people would find their hope in you. That more and more people in our midst and in our neighborhood would have their reproach lifted as they turn and worship you, Lord Jesus. And so we ask that that is what our church would be marked by. Love for you. And a willingness to share it as we sing in this Advent season, that we would go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. But not only that he's born, but that he's died and that he's resurrected and that he's at the right hand of the Father and that he's coming again and that that is good news for those who fear him. We love you, Lord. Amen.